You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right, good morning. Um, my name is Caleb. Thanks so much for uh, being here this morning. Uh, I really appreciate Nick giving me the opportunity to preach. Um, you know, for a pastor to to uh, give up his pulpit to anybody is a uh, is a sign of great humility, and so I, I take that very seriously. And so um, it's my privilege and, and honor to bring you the word this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of First Peter. We're going to continue this morning our walk through First Peter. As Nick mentioned, we're going to be in First Peter chapter three today. Our theme for for this book is exiles. What does it mean for us as Christians to live in this world as exiles? Because that's what we are, right? Do you feel that? I mean, I, I, f- I feel that now more than ever, right? Over this past year where everything is so polarized and politicized. It's just, I hope that we as Christians don't find ourselves comfortable in the polarization, right? Um, Jesus has called us to, to something different, and so it's that, that tension of living as exiles in this broken world. Last week, Nick addressed the exciting and crowd-pleasing topics of submitting to our governing authorities and um, slaves be subject to your masters, two you know, not controversial uh, topics at all, and so we figured, well, let's just go ahead and get the third one in this week for husbands and wives, and so um, pretty difficult subjects to talk about, especially given everything going on in our culture, and so um, that's what we're going to be talking about today. What does it mean for husbands and wives to live together? What's God's design for the family? Before I get started, before I read the passage, I want to just talk about really quick three presuppositions for this sermon, okay? So when I say presuppositions, what I mean is here's how I'm approaching this text, okay? It's, it's, it's a difficult text. It's hard. When you, when you stand up and say, wives, be subject to your husbands, that's a hard thing for us to hear, okay? Um, but here's how I'm approaching this, okay? Number one, my, my first presupposition presupposition when I approach this text is this. This passage is the inspired and authoritative word of God, okay? Period. That's how, I'm not going to try to defend that. I'm just telling you that's my presupposition coming in. This, this passage has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Peter, when he wrote this passage 2,000 years ago, was writing exactly what he wanted, and he was writing exactly what God wanted, Okay, that's what inspired means. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote these words. Number two, since this is the word of God, we are called to submit ourselves to it. Okay, it has authority over us. We, we don't have the authority. We don't stand over the text and say, this is what I'm going to believe and this is what I'm not. We are called to conform our lives to God's word, not conform God's word to us or to our culture or what the culture tells us, okay? God's word has authority over us. 
Number three, and this, uh, this I think is kind of the most important one, at least in terms of getting us off on the right foot. When we submit under the word of God and live according to his standards, we will never miss out on anything better. Friends, God's design for families is what is best for you, okay? If you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're going to be a husband or a wife, when you live out the principles we're going to talk about today, that is God's best, okay? We don't have to to think about these things and say, you know, is this going to make me look stupid, If I obey these things, how much freedom am I going to miss out on? Am I going to look backwards? Um, You know, how much is this going to mess with my plans uh, for my career or whatever? We don't have to worry about those things because God's best is better than what we think is best for us, okay? So those are my three presuppositions. This is an inspired word of God. We are called to submit ourselves to it, and when we do, we get God's best, okay? So let, let's approach the text like that this morning. So if you would, please stand with me as we read the passage, First Peter chapter 3. First Peter 3, starting in verse 1, says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, give us light now to our eyes, Help us to see what you have for us this morning and to seek to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So I structured this sermon basically in two parts. First, uh, Peter addresses wives. That's the first part. The second part, Peter addresses husbands. Pretty clear. Under each part, there's four points. So the first thing that we see here uh, is uh, I sum up wives be subject to your husband. Wives be subject to your husband. That's the first thing Peter says. This passage highlights what we see throughout all of Scripture, okay, that men and women are equal in value and dignity and created in the image of God. And yet, within the context of marriage, God has designed men and women for different roles and responsibilities, okay? Men are called to loving, faithful leadership. Women are called to follow the husband's lead, submitting herself to his leadership. So the first thing we see here is wives be subject to your own husband. Now, the first question we have to ask is, of course, When he says, be subject to your own husband, what does be subject mean? 
Okay, so the, this word here, be subject, it means to subordinate, to be under obedience, to put under, to submit yourself unto. So it really does mean what it says, right? This is what you get with the Bible a lot of times. It actually means what it says. And so we can't really get around that. Last week, Nick gave a definition of what submission means in terms of the governing authorities and your employer, like slaves and masters. He quoted, I think, from John Piper. I'm going to also quote John Piper here because he gives a great summary definition of what submission means here. He says, submission in this context is the defined calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. It's a great summary of what submission is here. See, Peter is not calling all wives to be subject to all husbands. Notice what he says. Be subject to your own husband. Okay? This agrees with what we'll see later in the passage, that males and females are equal in value and dignity before the Lord. There's not something inherently lesser in the female sex so that every female is subject to every male. That's not Peter's point here, okay? He's talking about in the context of marriage, wives be subject to your own husband. God has designed a wife and a husband to live together in a certain way. He's designed the family unit to function with the husband bearing the weight and responsibility to lead, provide, and protect and the wife to follow, encourage, provide input, and help carry his leadership through. This happens in each family differently, right? Every family, every husband, every wife has different strengths and weaknesses, different plans, different goals, different aspirations, right? This is going to look different in each family. But the general principle is that husbands lead, wives follow. So the first thing we see is be subject to your own husband, your own husband. Number two, a wife's submission should encourage greater faithfulness in her husband. So look at the second half of verse one. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It seems that Peter here is addressing wives of unbelieving husbands. Okay, and so at that time, um, when this was written, it was probably very common, as it is kind of common today, that a wife could become a follower of Jesus when her husband was not. So they would essentially be two different religions, right? Peter says that she must not become quarrelsome or confrontational or disobedient to his leadership just because she is of a different faith. The marriage covenant is still in effect, Okay, the promises they made to one another are still valid and binding. The wife is still called to submit to the leadership of her husband, even if they worship a different God. Now, the reason I say a wife's gentle submission should lead her husband to greater faithfulness is not because the husband's faith is dependent or the husband's salvation is dependent on the wife. Okay, so this word should here isn't placed on the wife as like, you know, if your husband isn't coming to Jesus, it's probably your fault, right? That's not what I'm saying. That's not a responsibility for the wife to bear. What I'm saying is the husband is responsible before God on his own to repent and trust in Jesus. 
His faith is dependent not upon you as the wife. You are not meant to bear the responsibility for his acceptance of, or rejection of Jesus. But what Peter is saying here is that many times God uses the quiet, submissiveness, and servant-hearted faith of a wife to soften the husband's heart towards the Lord. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Peter's words are not to be so understood as though a holy life alone could lead the unbelieving husband to Christ, but that it softens and pacifies their minds so that they might have less dislike for religion. So the idea is that the wife, through her, submissive, her submissiveness, her servant-heartedness towards her husband, would soften his heart so that he is drawn to Jesus and drawn to Christ. So here we see right away that God is always up to something bigger in our marriages, right? He's not just concerned to like, husbands have the authority, wives follow, you do this, you do that, right? His idea, though, is that is to bring about heart change. So even in the roles, even in the relationships that God has assigned to husbands and wives, his purpose is to draw the husband to himself. Now, this same principle applies, I think, to believing husbands. I mean, if you're here and you're married to a Christian woman, we, you have probably experienced this, have you not? Have you ever been struggling in your faith, struggling to lead your family and maintain motivation in pursuing Jesus, but then, this happens to me a lot, then you notice the faithfulness of your, your wife, her steadfastness, her servant-hearted commitment to you and the family. And in that dynamic, in that, in, in that observation, your, your heart is encouraged to persevere Maybe you're convicted of your own lack of faith or laziness in the home. Maybe your affection for your wife is renewed as you watch her faithfully serve. And that rekindles your relationship in a special way. That causes your heart to be softened towards God's word. Man, if I've experienced that in my home. Um, there are times when I struggle to maintain um, a desire to pursue Jesus. And then I watch my wife now, her commitment to me and to our family, um, she, she'll say something that just brings my, softens my heart and brings the perspective that I need back to my life. That is a gift, uh, friends. If you're here, uh, that, that, is a, that is a gift if you're here and you're married to a godly woman who does that. So this same principle applies, that the wife is instrumental in encouraging faithfulness in her husband. Number three, live in the sight of God, not in the sight of men. Look in verse, verses three and four. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I mean, how countercultural is this, Right? The pull, especially for young women, is to live your life in order to attract as much attention to yourself as possible, particularly physical attention, right? The more skin you show, the more loud and vulgar you can be, the more you can live your life according to your own self-expression, the more our culture will celebrate you, hold you up, 
and say, follow this. But God calls wives to something better. To live not in the sight of man, but in the sight of your heavenly Father. See, rather than calling you to promote your body as something to be used and consumed for the pleasure of others and to live for self-glory, God calls us to let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This doesn't mean that women are forbidden to wear jewelry or dress up nice. It's a question of priority. Where does your priority lie? Are you consumed with external, temporary, fleeting things? Or are you most concerned with things that are, in, that are eternal, like holiness, purity, godly character? Do those things mark your life? This is hard, isn't it? Because this takes effort and intentionality to pursue godliness if we're not pursuing godliness, we will simply absorb what the culture tells us is most important. It's, it just happens automatically. Godliness doesn't happen automatically. You have to pursue it. It has to be intentional. This word gentle here in verse 4 can also mean mild or humble. This word gentle only occurs three other times in the New Testament. It's in the first beatitude where the meek, Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth. It's, it's in the prophecy in Matthew 21 that Jesus the king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. It's talking about the, the meekness, the, the humility of Jesus. And it's in one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, Matthew 11, where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says this. He says, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. This is the kind of woman God is calling you to be, friends. One who is gentle. This word quiet also means peaceable. Are you a peaceable person? This is not Peter telling wives they need to keep their mouths shut. That's not what this is talking about. He's addressing an attitude of the heart. Is your heart bent towards peace towards your husband? Or do you enjoy causing disruption and conflict? These two words here, gentle and quiet, give us a picture of the kind of wife that honors God. She is humble, not showy. She is gentle, not abrasive. She is mild, not harsh. She works for peace, not delighting in conflict or pushing for her own way. She is, as Genesis 1 tells us, a helpmate suitable for her husband. And what about this term, imperishable beauty? I, th I thought about this a lot this week. What, what a glorious promise this is. This leads to an imperishable beauty for you women. 
what happens when you strive for these qualities? You develop what Peter calls an imperishable beauty. It doesn't fade over time. No matter how much makeup you put on or CrossFit classes you attend, eventually the effects of age and life will take their natural effect, right? Like the great modern philosopher's Radiohead said, <laughs> gravity always wins, right? It's just a matter of time. But think about this. The most important beauty, the beauty of the soul that leads to a humble, peaceable, servant-hearted life will never perish. It never diminishes. It only grows more and more as time goes on. This means that your desire for beauty, even though externally you may not see the results that you want, yet your desire for inner beauty can only increase when you pursue Jesus. What a gift God has given us. Something to cultivate, something to, to, to be intentional about is cultivating the inner beauty of the heart, gentle, quiet spirit. And we're told also in verse 4 that this beauty is very precious to God. So live in the sight of God, not in the sight of men. And fourth, submit gladly and trust fearlessly. Submit gladly and trust fearlessly. In, first, in verse uh, 5, he says this, This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. See, women, submitting to a sinful man will make you vulnerable. It will be terrifying at times. It will cause you to look weak, backwards, and old-fashioned. It may even result in you being in situations that cause you great fear, like Sarah was with Abraham. What's Peter talking about here with Abraham and Sarah? What did Sarah do that was worthy of imitation? In Hebrews 11, we're told this. This is how the, the book of Hebrews describes Abraham and Sarah and their faith. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And here's what it says about faith, or about Sarah. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Ladies, whether you're married or not, try to put yourself in Sarah's shoes here. You're around 65 years old. Your husband's around 75. One day he comes to you and says, I know we have tons of possessions, livestock, land. We're super rich, and uh, we're in this town called Ur, but God just told me we have to move. What's your response going to be? Well, Sarah, maybe Sarah said, okay, where are we going? Abraham says, west. <laughs> she said, okay, west what? West Virginia, you know, West, Western Illinois. Do we have a town? Abraham says, no, I don't know where we're going. All I know is we're going west. 
And that's exactly what they did. They packed up and they just started walking. I mean, Hebrews tells us they went out not knowing where they were going. Put yourself in that situation. What was the secret to Sarah's faith? Hebrews tells us she considered him faithful who had promised. It wasn't Abraham. She considered God faithful. She trusted in the promises of God. Ladies, the world needs women like Sarah. They are committed to their husbands because they trust in God's design for their home. They follow his leadership because they know that when they do, they are following Jesus. And they laugh in the face of fear because the promises of God are more real and more precious to them than earthly suffering and discomfort. That doesn't mean they're not afraid. It doesn't mean they don't have fear. It means they choose obedience and trusting in God in the face of fear. So single ladies, search out other women, other wives who do this well. I'm married to one. I have a wife like Sarah. Of the two of us, she is by far the more emotionally stable one. On a daily basis, she puts her own worldly comforts and desires aside for the good of our home. She chooses others over herself. She's the most selfless person I know. She rarely complains or groans. She continues to choose the path of difficulty and discomfort, knowing that following Jesus is not meant to be easy, but it's always good. Single ladies, find these wives and imitate them. If you're here and you're a wife and you struggle to live these things out, you are in good company. Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness for you. So today, remember that you have been made new by the blood of Jesus and commit yourself anew to being a wife like Sarah. Let's turn now to husbands. Husband, honor your wife. That's how I sum up Peter's instructions to husbands. We're going to see four things very quickly. Number one, husbands live in an understanding way. Understand that your wife's position is one of vulnerability and risk. She is not less than you. Remember that. She's called to follow your leadership. Are you a husband that is easy to follow or difficult to follow? Ask yourself that. Do you listen to her input and take her preferences and desires into account, or do you just press on without her no matter what since you have the authority, right? Colossians 3 tells us, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Remember, live with her in an understanding way. Number two, honor her as the weaker vessel. Ooh, that kind of... Kind of rub you the wrong way, ladies? Honor her as the weaker vessel. We, what does weaker mean here? Weaker does not mean less valuable, less important, less in the image of God. That's not what Peter is getting at. Then what does it mean? First, what we have to recognize is whatever it means, it's something to be honored and not despised. Men are told to honor their wives as a weaker vessel, not despise them. He doesn't say tolerate her as the weaker vessel. He doesn't say exploit her as the weaker vessel. He doesn't even say love her as the weaker vessel, although you should. 
He says to honor her in her weakness. So first, it's a weakness of position. She's called to follow, not lead. Just like, think about a military unit as kind of an analogy, where soldiers are called to follow their commanding officer. The soldiers are, in one sense, in a position of weakness when compared to the position of the commander, right? It's the same sort of dynamic in marriage. That's a weaker position. But second, I do believe Peter has in mind here physical weakness. Now, why do I think that? Because he uses this word vessel, okay? This word vessel oftentimes can be used and, and when talking about the body, right? The, the, the stuff that makes us, that makes us us. That's what this word vessel means. So I take this to mean that Peter is primarily talking about the physical makeup of the wife, so just to be as clear as I possibly can, if I haven't offended you enough already, it ought not cause us any heartache to state what has been obvious for all of human history, okay? That generally speaking, the vast majority of women are physically weaker than men. That ought not surprise us. It should not offend us to hear that or to say that. It is, it's, it's been obvious throughout all of history that women are at great physical risk from men who wish to harm them, okay? I've been a police officer for five and a half years. Uh, we go to multiple domestic violence calls daily. The vast majority, vast majority of them are men abusing women because they can, right? So I think what Peter has in mind here is that the woman is the weaker vessel in the, in the sense that she is positioned under his leadership and she is vulnerable. She is vulnerable physically. Now, what does it mean to honor her as this weaker vessel? As I've gotten older, I've taken more of an interest in antiques. And so one of the shows I love watching is like clips of the Antique Roadshow, if you've ever seen that. Um, this kind of stuff I thought was just so lame when I was younger. But man, I'm getting older now. And uh, I love watching like things like people bringing in their junk, right, that they've inherited from some grandmother or whatever, or they bought at a yard sale, and they bring in and they find out that it's worth like hundreds, thousands of dollars, you know. Um, I mean, just earlier this year, somebody from New Haven, Connecticut, they bought a, a bowl, just this uh, blue and white bowl from a yard sale for $35. Turns out this bowl was from the 15th century Ming Dynasty of China. It just sold a couple months ago at auction for $721,000. <laughs> Imagine that. 35 bucks, 721,000, right? Um, other vases similar to this one sold for $22 million. There's like seriously less than 25 of these things in, in existence. So, um, so on the one hand, you have these incredible antiques, right? Whatever it is you're into, the weirdest stuff, right? Whatever it is. Maybe it's something super valuable, right? Either monetarily or emotionally. On the other hand, you have a sledgehammer. These two things. Which one is weaker? Right? The vase from the Ming Dynasty of the 1400s or a sledgehammer? 
Well, the, the vase is weaker, right? Which one do you honor? Which one do you put in a glass case? Which one do you give to a museum to be held up and put on display? Right? I think this is what Peter has in mind, the weaker vessel, someone who you lift up and you hold up and you honor, you put on display for the world to see. Uh, years ago, my wife and I, we went to Paducah, Kentucky to see this traveling exhibit of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if you have, have ever seen that or heard of that, but there's this group of people that travel around. They have fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were found back in the 50s. They ended up being, and they're hundreds of years old, but they're portions of, of Scripture, of the Old Testament, uh, from thousands of years ago, and they have just fragments of them, and they've got them in these glass cases, right? These, these, uh, these like picture frames all over the place, and you can see them and, and, and look at them, and it's just phenomenal. But what happened when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls is they unrolled these scrolls, and they just like vanished. They just fell apart, basically, in in the hands of the people that that found them. So they have to put them back together, and so they have all these fragments. It's the same idea, right? It's such a valuable piece of history, valuable piece of literature. You just have a tiny piece of it, but you put it on display. It's weak, but it's to be honored. So what's my point? My point is that this is what Peter's trying to get across. We are not meant to get hung up on exactly what ways women are weaker than men. We are called to honor them, lift them up, praise them, Thank them. Proverbs 12 says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. So husband, are you honoring your wife? Are you lifting her up? Are you edifying her? Are you pushing her, moving her towards Jesus? Number three, husbands, remember this. Your wife is your sister before she is your wife. She's your sister before she's your wife. She is an heir with you, Peter tells us, in the grace of God. This is the clearest statement here in this passage on the equality of husbands and wives that Peter can make. It's clear that he understands that husbands and wives are created in the image of God, both for his glory. Men, your wife, if she is a Christ follower, is an equal recipient of the saving work of Jesus. Her sins have been paid for just like yours. She's been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, just like you, and her calling is first and foremost to her God, just like yours is. This is the most important reality in our marriages. Whether you're married today or you plan to be married in the future, please take this to heart. Your spouse is equal with you in the grace of life. Why is this important? Because when our spouse sins against us, we can give grace because that sin is paid for by Jesus. And then the home becomes the workshop of God's grace, not just a place for you to get all of, all of your needs and desires met, but the home becomes the workshop, the place where God is at work in your heart and in your spouse's heart as you rub against one another and there's sin and there's forgiveness and there's growth and there's hurt and there's all of these things happening. That's God at work, friends. What an opportunity to grow in the grace of God 
as we live lives of uh, showing grace and honor to one another. And you have the most important thing in common with your spouse if you are both believers. You can pursue Christ together. What a joy that can be. Proverbs 31 says, An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. Number four, husbands, your communion with God depends on your leadership in the home. Notice the last thing Peter says here. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Hmm. So he gives this command, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her. She's an heir with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You see, prayers offered to God that flow out of a life of obedience are effective. Prayers offered to God from a life of disobedience will be hindered. They will be thwarted. This is a serious warning for husbands. This teaches us that our relationship to our wives is directly tied to the fellowship we have with God. They are not independent of one another. In fact, this is true of all of our relationships, right? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, don't do this sp the spiritual duties stuff before you make things right with your brother, right? It's the same idea. Your relationship with your spouse is going to influence and um, it is dependent. Your, relationship, your communion with God is dependent on your relationship with your spouse, okay? James 5 tells us that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. But brothers, if you are not living in peace with your wife, if there's conflict there that's unresolved, if you're not shepherding her the way God has called you to, Peter's very clear. Your prayers will be hindered. We need to take that seriously. The way we behave in our relationships indicate how we are walking with God. And how we are walking with God directly affects the efficacy of our prayers. Husbands, if this is an area of weakness or failure today, Take heart. You're in good company because I'm here. <laughs> I fail at this. The gospel says these words to us today. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. There is hope and forgiveness for sinful husbands today. Let today be the day that we commit ourselves anew to living out God's design for our marriage. A single men, I'll say what I said to single women, Find other men who do this well. Get to know them. Imitate them. Keith Sparrow does this well. Get to know Keith. Spend time with Keith. Nick does this well. I've seen it in his home. Get in other people's homes. Get involved in people's lives. Imitate what you see there. If you see a husband that's doing something right, say, are you going to be a husband someday? Imitate them, get to know them, examine their lives, spend time in their home, 
imitate their godly character. We covered a lot of ground. There's a lot here. We could say a lot more. Um, I want to say two more things in closing. Number one, don't let the perversion of these principles cause you to throw them out completely. Okay, friends? I know that's probably been going on in your minds a lot as I've been preaching. I can't cover every single possible question, but we must not fall into the trap that's become so prevalent in our day that says, well, since some people misuse a principle, then we just need to throw the entire system out. That's not how we need to think about this passage. We've got to be better thinkers than that. To use God's word as a cover for abusive habits and behavior is not just a twisting of God's design. It's an outright rejection of it, okay? So men who use passages like this to mistreat and harm and destroy their wives, they're not twisting this passage. They're denying it, all right? Some of you possibly have experienced abuse in some form firsthand. Maybe you're the victim of it. Maybe someone close to you is. If that's you this morning... Again, you are in good company here. New City Church is not meant to be a house for the holy. It's meant to be a hospital for the helpless and hurting. You're welcome here. We want you here. We love you. We want to walk with you through whatever it is you're going through because that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus does not look at you with disgust or disappointment because of what others have said to you or done to you. His arms are open to you. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And number two, abuse, whether it be physical, sexual, emotional, or spiritual, is never okay. We want to be as clear as we can about that as a church. Um, abuse is never okay. There are patterns of behavior in a marriage that should not constitute abuse, and there are patterns that should, okay? Now, it takes wisdom to know the difference. It takes counsel. It takes a lot of, of questions and, and, and figuring out what's going on, but abuse in all of its forms is never okay. We must be the first people to say that using God's word as a weapon against someone else to demean or punish them must be called out for what it is. Friends, we cannot constantly be looking at each other with suspicion, but we also must be watchful, right? Watchful for the safety and spiritual health of one another. This is why God calls us to a deep community of love and accountability. So take time to invest in one another's lives so that we can always be spurring one another on toward godliness and holy living in our homes. God's design for marriage is good and holy, and it leads to our highest human flourishing. Let's be a church of men and women who gladly accept God's design and submit ourselves under the word of God. And remember, we will never miss out on something better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your wisdom. We need your um, instruction in our lives more than ever. God, I pray for the husbands in this room. 
Lord, that they would not be authoritarians, but they would be shepherds, that they would lead by example, that they would seek to grow and cultivate and walk with and not just demand. I pray for the women, the wives in this room, Father, that they would be faithful helpmates to their husband. They would lead quiet, peaceful lives. They would serve faithfully in their homes. And God, that as we, as, a, as New City Church, put these principles into practice, that our community, that this city would look at us with just wonder. They would see something different here. They would see the beauty of Jesus as we live out your design for marriage. God, we thank you for these instructions. Help us to be faithful now in Jesus' name. Amen. God's word is meant to be a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. We don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. And so this is the moment where we want to encourage you to respond to Jesus, however he's calling you to respond. We typically do it in three ways. Number one, we reflect. Man, is there a place that you need the healing touch of Jesus where you, Caleb mentioned seeing this go bad, right? Is there a place where you need Jesus to come and bolster your faith? Is there a new place of submission that you're, you're wrestling against in your marriage that, that you need to obey God in whatever it is? Or if you're, if you're a man and you've been misusing this or you've been failing to be easy to follow, Respond to the word this morning. You won't miss out. You won't miss out. And the second place that we go is the Lord's table in remembering what Jesus has done on our behalf. My goodness, the very Lord of glory entered into submission the same way that he's calling even our wives to enter into today. He modeled submission for us. And so when you come to this table, you remember and you proclaim that you follow Jesus in his call on your life. Bring your hurts to him. Bring your, your worst moments, your deepest fears to the table and remember that Jesus died for you, that he will come again, that every injustice that's been done against you will be made right. And then finally, we rehearse. When we sing, we, we are literally participating in a dress rehearsal for heaven. This is a moment where we get the, the veil between heaven and earth wear very thin in the moment where the church stands up and sings praises to Jesus. And so I want to invite you this morning to sing loudly and sing joyfully. New City family, respond when you're ready. I'm going to be in the back. I'm happy to pray with you, to process with you what you've heard this morning. Respond when you're ready.